0: You're listening to the Gunslinger Podcast, a production of Flying Tom Studios. And now, here's your hosts, the Apostle and Creed River.
1: Yes, folks, believe it or not, it's us again. Episode number five. Number
0: five.
1: And uh, going well, going
0: well. We appreciate you, uh, everybody, tuning in, as always. We have some pretty faithful listeners uh, on the cast
1: so far. Yeah, Uh, and have sold some merchandise. Who who would have ever known? A little bit. So thank you all for your... Unneeded cash.
0: I have some new updates on our uh, analytics. We are in the U.S. and Canada, Puerto Rico, Indonesia, and the Philippines.
1: Sweet. Right? I mean, that's that's worldwide. That's That's a sign of success. success. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Honcho. Honcho. Uh, Somebody get Honcho, because we should have Switzerland on here. Somebody pat him on the shoulder, wake him up, tell him he needs to listen. So, uh, we'll start things out. Uh, Last week, the week before, I can't remember exactly when, I... I made a bit of a wisecrack about Alec Baldwin. And I had a few messages about that and about making a wisecrack about Alec Baldwin.
0: Were they in defense of him?
1: They were not. Okay. Well, they're good. Uh, They were not. And I just wanted to elaborate and make sure everybody understood. I'm going to continue to make wisecracks about Alec Baldwin. Uh, Because what a piece of crap, first and foremost. But second of all, and, and this is how I'll tie it into our culture uh fast draw culture and i'm and i'm discussing every organization i personally know about and every person that i've ever met in fast draw culture it is very firmly ingrained in us the need for safety and we are a we are a gun safety culture a firearm safety culture and i'm very proud of that and i take a lot of pride in that and when i when i see very unfortunate, very sad, and just disastrous stories, like the this very unneeded ordeal with Alec Baldwin. Yeah, i th- I
0: really do think it was just a terrible, terrible accident. um I would criticize him for the way he has responded and handled it since then but but I also sympathize with him to a to to a degree because. He didn't mean to do that. He and didn't mean
1: to and he and, has
0: to live with it now and
1: i and I do agree with that part of it. but there were uh, so
0: many red my, flags from a safety standpoint on And that I guess movie that's set.
1: my whole thing I, I there's a part of me that that I guess human nature we're supposed to have remorse for folks and in any situation forgive and forget and that whole situation. but i when I look at how unnecessarily stupid this whole situation was. When I when I think to myself, if I could have just got onto that movie set and given my loud, ridiculous safety meeting that I give and and actually had these people listen to it, maybe it could have saved a life. Maybe when we talked about how horribly how horrible of an idea it was to have live Live ammunition on this set. Maybe somebody would have turned around and thought, you know what? I think he's right. Yep. Maybe just a, just a smidgen of common sense and practical application uh, could have prevented that. So, yes, ladies and gentlemen, I will continue to make wise cracks, and I'll continue to make them funny if I can, but that'll be up to you. Uh, but we in, we in fast draw culture are going to live a safe life. We are going to promote firearm safety. And uh, that's just how it's going to be. Well,
0: hey, there's a, there's a question for you. Shifting gears a little bit, maybe from, from safety, let's talk about firearm experience. Okay. So uh, would you think, or, or what is your opinion, would someone who, say, has a, a military background or a police background, who has a lot of experience handling firearms, would they have any sort of advantage uh, do you think in the sport of fast draw?
1: So in my experience, and this is as a longtime club member and shooter and club you know manager things of that sort, uh, I deal with I, I personally have dealt with a lot of off the street folks. And in my experience, and there's a lot of policemen listening, there's a lot of military, either active or ex-military listening.
0: And thank you for your service. And
1: thank you for your service, but just hold on to something, grip it tight, and bear (laughs) with me for a few minutes here, because you're not going to like all this. In my experience, I have more issue teaching ex-military or current military and ex-police or current police the the tips in fast draw. Not the how-to, but improvement tips. And I think the reason why is because these are educated people when it comes to firearms. Not only with firearms, but these are educated people when it comes to their usage, their proper usage, and combat shooting.
0: Well, the technique is completely different. Completely the, different. The muscle memory is completely different. So...
1: These people have been educated to do this the right way, uh, to to handle and and use of a firearm the correct way. And I want to make sure everybody understands that. I'm not bad-mouthing the experience level of police or, or military. What I'm saying is they've been taught to do it the right way, and in Fast Draw, we're doing it a safe yet fun way. Uh, it, so it, the long and short of what I'm trying to say is when, when when you have someone on the line who is who has a trained muscle memory style of actual practical application shooting and you're trying to teach them a novelty style of shooting,
0: they buck you a whole lot. Well in, in my mind it's it's just not it's it's apples and oranges. It's yes. like saying, Nick, I know you can play guitar. Uh, that's an instrument. Sure. So why why can't you play piano?
1: Right. Yeah. Here's the that's s-
0: also an instrument. Why right? can't
1: you play saxophone? Exactly. Yeah. Well, music comes out of both, depending on how I'm handling it. Anyway,
0: but the technique is completely and totally very different.
1: different. Yeah. And and I, I guess that's the point. Has anyone else noticed this? So I, and if, if I take, so you got. Random old hillbilly boys out here in Kentucky who have handled shotguns their whole life. Uh, we, we live a Hank Jr. song out in this part of the, of the <laughs> United States around here. And so I come in off the street. I knew about firearms. I had bought myself a single-action pistol and watched Gunsmoke and had absolutely no idea how to shoot fast draw. I just didn't. I, I came in off. I, I'm emulating what I saw in Gunsmoke. Sure. No idea what I'm doing. But I'd gotten good at what I was doing in my garage at home before I got there. Taught myself all kinds of bad habits that it took me several months to get out of. Uh, but I was open to the idea of learning how these other people had done it because I, it was it was something still new to me. I, I'd been around firearms my whole life, but I had not. I didn't have much experience with single action firearms. I I wasn't trained to do so. I wasn't trained to shoot people in the OK corral. Right. I also wasn't educated on keeping the peace out in urban environments or or defending the country. Wasn't educated in that. So it was easier for me to kind of change what I did. Do you find it harder for military and police personnel? Uh, Talk about that amongst yourselves. I'll, I'll post a discussion post on. Well, I will have by the time. This is aired. So I'd, I'd really be curious about what you all think about that. Or if you think I'm dead wrong, I'd love to hear that too, because I often am. So, I agree. Yeah. let me. I, I won't be offended. Let me know.
0: But you defend your own position with such vigor and confidence, I will, I even will, when it's wrong.
1: I will talk until <laughs> I pass out. It doesn't mean I'll ever prove myself right, but it, I kind of filibuster every conversation really I'm ever in. You really do. You really do. Yeah. All right, folks, let's uh, let's change the topic a little bit. Instead, let's have a little bit of a history class today. With us in the studio today on the telephone, we have got Cal Elrich. Quick Cal, don't tell me you haven't heard that name
2: before. Quick Cal, sir, how are you today? Hey, you know what? I'm doing great there, Green River. It's just a wonderful day here in Nevada. In uh, So tell me what your weather
1: is like in Nevada. This is one of my favorite things to to, to ask people about. <laughs>
2: We just got over a heck of a cold spell in here, and a lot of moisture has hit the West Coast. You know, we're just over the big mountain range from California, but, you know, it's just getting, it's, it's going to be 50 degrees here today, 1st uh, of February, and that ain't bad.
1: Now, tell me, that wasn't your cold spell, 50 degrees. Well, our, our,
2: no, no, today's 50 degrees, but man, it got to where we were in the highs in the 20s for a few days. Okay. That, that's cold.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I'll give you that. That's about where we're sitting right now, too. Uh, the Michigan yeah. people would argue with us, but what do they, it's not their turn.
2: Well, that's right. Well, of course, I'm originally from Chicago, so I, I kind of know what those weathers are, those winters are like.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That'll definitely be a little bit more northern. So, mm-hmm. quick, Cal, uh, long history in the world of fast draw. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Cal before and outside of fast draw, and then work your way into it.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I I, I have loved the shooting sports since 1968 when I was 15 years old 55 years ago and uh, I started my first love of shooting sports was fast draw uh, my dad got me into the Chicago Colts fast draw club and uh, that's where I got started and you know it just it just took off from there you know I just love the people love the competition of course I was the kid and everybody was telling me slow down kid or you'll never hit nothing and and, but I kept going, I kept working at it and working at it and with, with, you know, some of the great members of our club. And, uh, I won the mid America championship in 1971 and that was no small deal in, in the Midwest, uh, Midwestern fast draw association in those years. And, uh, then the year after that, uh, you know, I moved out West and, uh, won the Canadian open up in British Columbia and, uh, the World Championship in 1972, and it just kind of took off from there. Phenomenal. Well, can you tell
1: us – let's let's talk about history, because I know you have a vast knowledge of fast draw history, and uh, you are kind of who most of us go to to reference this sort of thing anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of fast draw from the earliest days of, of competitive fast draw?
2: It, it really got started. You know, the, first, you know, the term fast draw or quick draw, you know, was – It was an old West term, but it had nothing to do with how fast you could draw your gun. They just, if you had a hot temper, they'd say, boy, he's quick on the draw. And, uh, and, you know, that kind of got studied and uh, let's say uh, focus of dime novels. These guys would write these books, follow follow the guys around, the gunfighters around, no matter what side of the law they were on, and write these kind of made-up stories about them. Uh, putting the, the the rules of the 18th century duels of honor involved, and pretty soon we're having gunfights at high noon out in the middle of the street that, of course, never actually happened. And uh, and so that went fine. All the easterners and Europeans loved to buy those little cheap novels, and it was a big thrill for them. And you know, while Bill Cody and his Wild West show was the, the rage in the late 1800s and such. Well, you know, they started making movies. In 1903, the very first movie ever made with a script and scenes was The Great Train Robbery. And uh, and actually, they were covering current history because it was about Butch Cassidy uh, and the Hole in the Wall Gang <laughs> holding up the flyer, you know, and that happened only 18 months before that movie. That was a current event to them. And, uh, But it looked so cool on the screen that, you know, they went, whoa, man, we, we got to get more of these stories to tell. And they, they reverted to those dime novels and applied it to Hollywood and made Westerns off of those. And uh, so that's where the romance and the legend of the Old West was really born. And then, uh, hey, as the myth grew through the 1920s, you know, they had Saturday matinees and then the 30s and all that stuff. Tom Mix became very popular, highest paid actor in Hollywood. All this, all this stuff was going on. But uh, there's a fella back in the 20s and 30s and 40s named Ed McGivern. He's a hero of mine. I, read his, I, I bought his book and read his book when I was a kid, Fast and Fancy you know, Revolver Shooting. And, and, uh, and it just struck with me you know, what, what he was doing, but it became a basis for a whole bunch of stuff, law enforcement training, live ammo. But they shot groups on targets. They, they had to hit something or they didn't consider it real. But now let me tell you, to answer your question, where Fast Draw came from. It was from these guys. Uh, some of these guys uh, were, you know, exhibition shooters were around in those days. And, uh, you know, and they, they started uh, doing some shows and stuff. A guy named, uh, named Rod Wedring was just a phenomenal trick shooter. Uh, and him and a number of others really got involved with teaching the Hollywood stars who were now getting Western parts and movie Westerns, and then TV Westerns hit like crazy, and some of those stars that they taught got actually amazingly good. Yeah, you know, I saw I saw one time a, a, a scene in in Maverick, uh, the television series mm-hmm. with James Garner in it. He did one of the coolest one take spinning and twirling routines, part of the act, telling them you know. It, it, I haven't seen that clip in years, but it was remarkable what James Garner could do with a gun. And uh, so a lot of these guys got really good. You know, the actual stars did. And uh, I had the honor of getting to know, uh, you know, Hugh O'Brien. And uh, I met him several times, got to know him. And, and, uh, and you know, the Hollywood type guys, you know, you, you, you can take – You can't take so much for serious what they say sometimes, of course, but,
1: you know, it's just,
2: uh, (laughs) but I'll tell you what, I credit him actually with getting the interest in, you know, challenging people to a fast draw because he challenged all the leading men in Hollywood playing in Westerns. He put up $500 to start with, then he doubled it up to a thousand. And of course, Hugh claimed he put up ten thousand dollars. So, but, but as the story goes, and and Hugh did confirm this, you know that, you know he put out this challenge, and everybody chickened out because Hugh got very fast with a gun, and uh, so no, nobody wanted to take him on, except Audie Murphy answered and said only if we do have live ammunition, <laughs> and you know, for real. And of course, that didn't happen. But right. But. But then, you know, the the, the Western craze just took over America, and Knott's Berry Farm had this big Western town there, and they had the train running around the park, and uh, this fellow named D. Wollum, he was a reenactor, and he, pardon me, and he held up this train uh, every 15, you know, every hour, 15 minutes on the hour, he'd hold up on this train, so the rest of, the, you know, the, that hour he'd sit around with not much time, you know, not not much to do. So he started messing around, developing his draw and building holsters and stuff and tuning guns. And he grabs a technician from uh, the park and they designed the very first fast draw timer to ever exist. And, uh, you know, 60 cycle motor, one sweep of the hands, one second, all that kind of stuff. And he held the very first fast draw contest in 1955. That's when the sport was credited to be started there at Knott's Berry Farm. They had 12 shooters, and first place was a chicken dinner. Nice. I mean, living (laughs) living right there. Yeah. Well, he won that four times in a row, went around promoting himself as a national champion. Uh, You know, Western Firearms, uh, great Western Firearms bought the rights to his timer and was marketing them all over the place. And <clears throat> then Colt started making the revolvers again because they saw the craze going across America. And uh, that's how the thing really got started. And uh, and then there's another story what happened in the, the few years following that. And I don't know if I have time to tell that story, but it's, it's, it's quite large.
1: It's a large history, yeah. It, it takes a lot of
2: telling, I'm sure. Well, it, the history is important to me, though.
1: Absolutely. Because
2: if you don't know what mistakes were made, how can you ever make it in the future, better in the future?
1: Absolutely. So how, how did that first timer, how did those first <clears throat> matches, how did they work?
2: Well, those first matches was totally fast draw. You know, I hear people say that these days, name of the game is fast draw. It's all about speed. Well, that one had a micro switch, which is a button on a little box that you put, your hand four inches away from your gun is the way D did the game. And then the moment you went for your gun, that micro switch would turn off the timer. And basically they shot a little safety blank or a primer even would set the timer off. And that clutch driven timer would stop that hand on the clock face, which is all marked off in hundreds of a second and that's how the first fast draw was done nothing but a fast draw that's it no reaction to a light no target to hit and pretty soon they started saying well it's got to be a level shot and uh, as tournaments started going around and then they came up with what was called walk and draw level
1: yeah i was and, and i wanted to ask about that tell us about it cuz you can still find videos on youtube and things Mm -hmm. of of walk and draw and that looks so cool i mean it's it's the idea of every western duel you've ever kind of seen but then the practicality of hey these guys have firearms uh how how did that actually play out tell us a little bit about walk and draw
2: okay well we're walk and draw level let's call it that because there was also walk and draw index where you shot targets with wax bullets and all kinds of stuff as right as time went on. But in walk and draw level, really the first, about 1958 in Tombstone and Heldorado days, and they didn't even have a timer. They had a guy dropping a hat. The shooters would stand about 100 feet apart and then they'd start walking towards each other, and the dude would stand in the middle and drop a hat and they'd both draw on fire. And just judges could tell the difference in those days because the draws weren't refined by that many people. And so they could tell kind of who won and lost. And was just judged. And Phil Reed, who was his boy Wonder back in those days, I mean, he was a fantastic shooter. Uh, and he cut he really cut his teeth on live ammunition more than shooting blanks. Phil didn't like much shooting blanks. In fact, they called anybody that shot blanks at balloons or whatever blank poppers or balloon poppers or whatever. They right. didn't, they kind of made fun of Fastraw. And uh, but So Thel, you really didn't see him competing in any of the fast draw contests that developed after that. And really in 1959, Colt had gotten so interested in fast draw during those, about 1957, they started making the single action Peacemaker again because they quit making it in the 1940s and they swore they'd never make another one. And you can read what they wrote, wrote there. And they said, ma'am, we were behind the, we were four years late and starting to make these things again. And, uh, and so they actually was promoting, trying to nationalize the sport, bring everybody together, standardize the rules. And, uh, so in 1959 they held the very first national championship in Las Vegas. And it was sponsored by Sahara and Colt at the Las Vegas convention center. And, uh, and, you know, they had, it was a big deal. They had all the Hollywood stars and westerns there. You know, they had talk show hosts, a bunch of a bunch of Hollywood celebrities, and uh, Hugh Downs. Can you imagine that? <laughs> the guy was a game show host. Yeah. But, but Clint Eastwood was there. You know, James Drury was there. All kinds of them were there that starred in the films, mainly to officiate. Glenn Ford and Clint Eastwood were the only two that actually paid entry fees and shot in the one, you know, in 1959. And uh, it was won by a guy thumbing. But then, and see, this is where we learn from the history of the sport. Uh, You know, it was very, it it looked like a Western thing should look in 1959 with people thumbing the guns, you know, almost everybody was thumbing. The following year, a fanner won it. And they had a six-inch hand rule. They had a guy walking along, making sure that your, your hand was six inches away from your gun. And then they had a person saying if your shot was level, uh, well, which was supposed to hit somebody at several feet away between the knees and the neck, I guess. And then later they developed that into three judges to determine if it was level because there was politics at play and things going on there. And uh, that's what you run into in judge sports. Right. But, they would start out to they'd stand 120 apart and they would turn the command shooters on the line shooters walk and they would start walking towards each other there was a light in the dead center of them and there was a there was a sound pickup going in both directions and the timer you would the the the, the you wouldn't know the loser's time because uh, the, it would, it would measure one shot with the first shot would, would turn off the timer and, uh, and, and, and that would be an indicator telling which shooter shot the first shot, but it was a strange thing. It wasn't the way we shoot elimination. They shot three shots against an opponent, luck with the draw. And in those first ones, they had like 120 shooters at the first one. They advertise this thing nationally. Uh, they had like 180 shooters at the second one, and it never really grew bigger than that. Because I believe when they went to Bannon, a lot of the Hollywood celebrities kind of quit competing in it. And when the third year, Kurt Blakemore won a twist banning, and uh, you know, and then it just took on a whole doomed dimension. They started Alfonso started making custom competition holsters. Right. And it all became about the competition, how fast a man could draw a gun without hitting anything, just how fast they could go from six inches away and fire a little shot. And uh, But, you know, it was interesting in those days. We, they had 5,000 people pay admission to come in and watch it. It was kind of a big deal got heard nationally. But I got to tell you what really happened there was a lot of bad publicity from all of the wannabes who were not even involved in the actual organized sport of the sport, you know, part of the sport. But they're sitting there doing fast draw with live ammunition. And uh shooting their, you know, blowing holes in their legs and injuring themselves. One guy even shot his child in his living room in Chicago doing fast draw with live ammo.
1: Good grief.
2: And, and yeah, and it was it was such a negative thing in those days all the other shooting sports that were established were trying to get fast draw outlawed because they thought they were going to lose their right to own firearms because of fast draw. And, and so we had to straighten it up, you know, and, and, uh, and so as the sport progressed uh, it just, it it was just riding the buck, you know, the buck quit, Colt kind of quit sponsoring the thing and carrying it because, Suddenly, the champions were shooting Rugers that were all skeletonized down, aluminum barrels, and holsters that were were starting to be made into bucket boots. Even then, they would take Al Bryan, who took second and three of those things, would tell me they'd take coke bottles, and they would pound them into their holsters with rubber mallets until it expanded the steel lining and all the kind of stuff they would do.
1: Yeah, it starts to sound a little silly after a while.
2: Well, you know what? It lost its tie to not only the old west but even hollywood there they were using holsters and guns you would never see in a hollywood movie even anymore
1: yeah and at that point yeah it it has kind of lost its luster
2: well it does it did and and uh you know there was actually they said colt had over a thousand clubs registered all over this country even i saw one report there were two thousand of them they claimed there was over a hundred thousand People doing fast draw in this country, and a lot of it was because of how many guns they were selling, right? And and, uh, there were several timer makers, fast draw timer makers by then, uh, and magazine articles, and some big magazines, even Life magazine, you know, and guns, guns, and ammo, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's just, um, uh, you know, it's just really, uh, I don't know. I think I think Fast Draw overdeveloped itself and it just lost the integrity. And, and also there were associations all over the country forming, you know, all over the Midwest, Ohio, Arizona, all over the place, all with their own set of rules. And no one could agree on the rules. Therefore, the, the sport never got truly organized back then.
1: But with those those immense numbers, you you always have so many different opinions and so many cooks in the kitchen and only so many pots to to cook something in. After a while, but the what I what I take from that is the numbers themselves. You know, for to be, mm-hmm. the, of course, the culture was at a was at an all time high. Uh, Western culture, you mm-hmm. know, people were still people still you still had kids. Uh, running around playing with, with holsters and cat pistols and things. And uh, it was a glorious time long before the iPhone ruined us all. And uh, <laughs> do you think we could ever reach those numbers again?
2: Those numbers, probably not, uh, just because the society in which we live live. But right now, we have bigger numbers than we've had since that period of time, because... I can tell you when I started in 1968, the the whole sport had boiled down to the – it was called the Western States Fast Draw Association. It was created in Northern California, and they, they took states out of it because Canada was involved too. And uh, then there was the Midwestern Fast Draw Association, which, which was the first one I joined. And then Ohio was going, and since I was from Chicago and we'd our club, we'd go over there in a the car and shoot with the Ohio guys, you know, and we got along just fine. But they had a two second miss penalty and they shot an eighteen inch wide target as opposed to everybody else shooting a fourteen. It's just everybody had to have their own spin on the sport, and nobody could really get it together. Sure.
1: Well, we try to be a bit more organized these days, but let's 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 dial back a little bit. Let's let's talk about sure. Just uh, So before, before you get so ingrained into this, who, who's, who were you thinking of when you first got into this? So everybody that's ever picked up a firearm, put it on their side, be it a plastic water pistol, all the way up to an actual Colt Peacemaker. They have, they have mm-hmm. put it in their pocket. They have put it in a holster. They have uh, They've done something, and they've looked in the mirror, and they've done that stance, that gunfighter stance. And everybody's done it, whether they're 8 or 80. Uh, somebody somewhere yeah, with a Glock 17 has got it on their side, and that's the first thing they do is that cowboy look in the mirror. So tell me, tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about your early influences. What made you start looking in that mirror with that pistol on? Who were who are your historical influences, and then eventually, what led into movie, TV, and then the actual sport?
2: Well, really, I mean, I was a kid growing up in the, you know in the late fifties and early sixties. And, and, you know, there was Roy Rogers on television, you know, probably my personal favorite was the Lone Ranger, which is probably why I still go around these days. When I see people having a problem, I try to help them, you know, and it's just uh, the, the do-gooder thing, you know, come from, from those people. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, I just really, really loved that as a kid. And, uh, but I suppose, what put the spirit of the gunfighter in me was watching Clint Eastwood and the Italian r- Westerns. Oh, yeah. And that was probably what got me thinking about being a gunfighter instead of the, a strumming cowboy <laughs> that would go around helping people.
1: Exactly, and,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, I, I suppose, I suppose you, know, you know, Fistful of Dollars was the one that really got me as as a young teenager and and then it went from there and uh but it's just I was into a lot of things i was you know like every kid you know it wasn't just westerns it was it was a lot of different
1: things oh sure and
2: uh, and I love sports i love sports and when the sport came along that had had six guns and western hats and stuff man I got sucked right in
1: so what kind of movie? Well, you and you talked about you talked about movies and Roy Rogers. What about when you actually got into it? I, I know for me when 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 the competition began, I can I can I can tell you the story of my very first competition, which was eight years ago this month. And I walk in mm-hmm. and, and I meet Shane and I meet Diamondback Billy and I meet, you know, several other shooters who are very well known. Uh, Jay Hawker, mm-hmm. uh, you know all these guys just happened to be at my very first event, but what I took away mm-hmm. from it was when it was all said and done, the ease that the people, the winners, I, I, I guess, how easy they made it look, and I and I think that's what mm-hmm. people are drawn to and with sports celebrities of any type. Uh, it you you you're, you're drawn towards those heroes, you're drawn towards those people you're drawn towards someone to aspire to be like kind of thing for you kind of maybe early Mm -hmm. on, who were some of the shooters that, that you kind of admired in that way?
2: Well, in the Chicago Colts, we had a couple of guys who were really good shooters in the Midwest. You know, Pat McMahon was one Uh, L he became later known as Al miles, but his name then was Al Malicevic. And we had some good shooters in our club. You know, I kind of learned how to thumb from watching them and watching Tom Blasian in our club, but I tell you what fanning was the thing, really you had to have an alfonso number two holster and you, and you had to you got you had to have aluminum barrel in your Ruger and you had and you had to fan in our club and uh and when I started traveling around with some of the Chicago Colts members that matches, I encountered. Uh, the guys who were really the kings of the Midwest in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. And, you know, first comes to mind actually is Ron Bright. Oh yeah. guy was so consistent. Okay. He was so consistent. He hit every shot for the entire season one year. And I think it was nine uh, chair uh, chairman sanctioned contests in the Midwest. And we didn't shoot blanks at balloons. Hardly. We shot, Fourteen inch wide silhouettes at fifteen feet, five shots. You know, the big contests were that. They were that at five shots, then you shot walking wax. And I'm talking you started at about twenty five feet away from the target are walking and you get your light between twenty one and fifteen feet, okay? Mind you, this is only a fourteen inch wide by thirty inch high silhouette. Sure, and uh, with kind of a head on it. and then then your third event would be that same target at twenty one feet. And I'm telling you. That guy would, if that guy missed a shot, you'd feel the earth shake beneath your feet. You know, he was just such, so steady. Uh, Then Bob Oh. he had, he, he he was what we call the slapcocker. Okay. You know, Ron was, Ron Bright was a fanner and uh, he he took up slapcocking later, but slapcocking is kind of like thumbing only you're actually cocking the hammer with your left hand instead of using your thumb. So it's the same basic draw and timing. And Bob was excellent at that. He would stand way fa- far off to the right. I mean, probably eight feet over to the right up center because we only had one target, one lane in those days, even at the biggest matches. And he'd stand way over to the, to the right side of the target, and he would just pull that gun out and shoot it. He was one of the shooters in the Midwest that could shoot in the high threes. Ron Bright would usually shoot around a 50, give or take a few hundreds. And, uh, but then there was a guy named Ron Phillips. Ron Phillips was a fanner, maybe the best fanner I ever saw. We called it ram fanning. And uh, he, he wasn't as consistent as Ron Bright, but he, he was very deadly and very good. And then he moved out west and learned how to shoot blanks, the same speeds and times the Westerners were shooting him at. He moved to Arizona. And, uh, and I moved out west, too, about a year after him to go to college in Tucson. And uh, and so I ended up moving out west. Ron and I, Ron Phillips and I both lived, lived out west. We knew how to shoot wax, like the westerners, which were far better than the western wax shooters. They'd shoot wax at a 50 or a 60. We'd shoot them in the low fours, high threes. And but they would then shoot their balloons at eight feet with a twist fan, and they would shoot in in down in the mid 20s around 20, you know, quarter of a second. Right. And so, so they would catch you up catch up to you. If you were, if you were using a fan draw with the blanks where you'd be shooting in the low thirties or something, low to mid thirties. And, uh, but then when, when Ron, both Ron and I learned how to twist blanks, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, to do the twist draw at the balloons with blanks, and was able to shoot the same times with them and as good as any of them really out West and hit the wax like we did uh we both had some real good runs out you know in the main part of shooting out here west
1: and that's great and And, that's uh, i mean that's a tale of of learning and adapting from your fellow shooters and that's that is always something i love to talk about so that's phenomenal so quick Cal, executive director of cfda uh cowboy fast draw association Let's talk, uh, what is, what is your goal for the future of fast draw culture? Is that, is that position?
2: Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, my, my goal really is to see fast draw survive for future generations to enjoy. And, you know, and I was, I had left fast draw twice, uh, once in the early eighties to pursue a, sh- a career in action, pistol shooting, which I had a great run at. I was on the in fact, United States team doing it, won a gold medal in Australia. And then I came back to fast draw. And then I left it again in, in the later nineties, uh, to take up SAS, you know, cowboy action shooting, where I not only built a big club, but had great success as a shooter. But my first love has always been fast draw as a sport. And when CFDA was founded, uh, I renewed my interest in it, and so I just I, – I, it's its kind of – back in the old, old days, They call, there was quick draw and there was fast draw. Quick draw was where you could draw a gun and hit a target with some degree of accuracy. It wasn't target shooting, but it was speed shooting, but it was done with live ammunition, okay, where fast draw was done with blanks and who knew who if you could hit a target or not. And I believe what Cowboy Fast Draw does is blend the two together with a, you know, with, with, a, with, a, with a proper size target that still promotes fast shooting. Because the Quick Draw guys back in the day shot a 12-inch plate at 21 feet with live ammo. Boy, that was hard. Yeah, I've, that's And difficult. I've done that. I've done that. I shot and fell Reed's last world uh, live ammo leather slap, they called it. But Cowboy Fast Draw is a mixture of quick draw and fast draw. And, I, and it's set up so people of all abilities can learn to do it well at a competitive level. So, so my goal is to keep building the, fat, you know, the, the Cowboy Fast Draw Association you know, to, to, to bigger heights, 10,000 members and beyond, uh, and so it can survive well past my time on this earth. I, I, because I won't be here forever. I turn 70 here next month. And, uh, and the aim is to take and build this organization so it can grow, keep growing in the future. That's my goal.
1: Absolutely. Now, sounds great. Tell us a little bit about what is happening in the world of CFDA this year. Anything, anything interesting going to happen?
2: I bet it is. Well, you know, we... You, we keep adding clubs. Uh, we just, we have two new, new state championships, uh, happening now, uh, this year, we got Indiana taken off. Now mm-hmm. they're going to do their, like we did Georgia last year at your match, you know, they're doing Indiana up in Michigan at their match, just to train that club, how to put on a state championship. And, uh, and we're trying to still pull Washington going. They're, they're running a Washington State in Idaho with the uh, great Northwest Territorial Championship. And we hope they pick it up and build a club up there. I've got a several. we got a number of members up there. I, they need to pull together and get a club going up there uh, in Washington State. We do have a club in northern Idaho that's near Spokane, you know, that some of them go to and stuff. But sure. we need to get bigger in the northwest. And, uh, no, everybody just keeps going. They love this game. This is part of their family. And, uh, and, and I don't see that stopping. So the goal for this year is to keep up that and sure. I would love to fill my dream of seeing 300 shooters at fastest gun alive this year. We almost made it last year. Our first indoor fastest gun alive.
1: Right. That's a, that's a and phenomenal so, goal. I like it.
2: Uh, anything else hey, for us today? You know, just, safety first fun second competition third and and just keep those things in mind and you can't go wrong and and, you know just be safe have fun and shoot straight
1: absolutely sir we appreciate your time appreciate the history lesson uh we always love to learn
2: thank you for being with us today thank you very much for having me and i'm actually I'm actually getting ready to write a book about all this stuff. I've decided to do that just this past week.
1: We would love to have you back on here when you're ready to talk about that book. Absolutely. Hey,
2: that'd be my honor. And It'd then I'll honor.
1: then I will definitely need a signed copy of it. Absolutely. Shameless, shameless plug for myself there, but I'll take it.
2: <laughs> That's all right. It's your show, buddy. Yeah. You can do
1: whatever you want. Absolutely. Sir, appreciate your time. Folks, thanks for tuning in and listening with us. And we will we'll do this again real soon.